you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. One of the most freeing things for me uh, as I've read scripture over the last number of years is to begin to put the whole kind of grand narrative of scripture together and, and look at uh, these stories within their broader context and to wrestle with uh, the bigger picture of these people. Because one of the things it has done for me is helped me see that these heroes of the faith, they're all a mess just like you and I. Not on one of them does it seem hardly have it all together, right? Uh, You'll be like, ah, this person is great. God has chosen them to do this thing, and they go and mess up royally. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. Look at Peter. Look at Judas. Look at uh, the early church and the apostles planting these churches. At every turn, uh, they seem to kind of begin to trust themselves or to doubt or to struggle, and, and and they get it wrong. And for, for me, who has gotten so many things wrong in my life, that is a freeing feeling to know that God is a God of grace who uh, will use us in spite of our flaws and in spite of uh, our problems. The, the, the story of Scripture isn't filled with uh, saints who were perfect, but it's filled with stories of people who sought God's heart, who, who allowed God to transform and to, and to redeem. The church is filled with people who don't get it right, but who seek God's face too. Uh, I love this uh, hodgepodge of stories we have for the king's narratives. This, this group of people who, um, who we lift up as heroes, right? Who we make flannel graphs of and VeggieTale uh, stories of. We uh, have uh, kids' special little books with pictures and pop-ups. Uh, but they're just a mess too. There's only one character in this whole king's narrative who is virtuous and they reject him. Samuel, uh, this this kind of main character, this foil for the kings at the beginning of this whole narrative, uh, really plays an, an amazing part in Israel's story. At, at the same time, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is judge. In a nation where ultimately there's going to be a, a kind of three-part division, instead of a president and Congress and the Supreme Court, they're going to have prophet, priest, and king. And Samuel plays all three parts seemingly as the only virtuous character across the whole narrative. There's no record of Samuel having some uh, kind of fall apart moment where he rejects Yahweh. Uh, across the board, he seeks Yahweh's heart and seeks to do the will of Yahweh and to, and to do uh, what is right for the nation of Israel. And because his kids are a mess, Israel rejects him. Look, you're fine, but your kids are a disaster. So we want what our neighbors have. We want strong, handsome men to be our king. But, but literally, that's their criteria. We want strong, handsome men to come and lead us into battle. And as we learned last week, uh, Samuel grieves this, and, and, and in conversation with Yahweh, we hear that, uh, that Yahweh sees this as a rejection of him, that they're going to trust in this human uh, to lead them and to go out. And so, and so Yahweh says, all right, Samuel, give them what they want. Tell them... This is on them, and, and though they're going to get this king, things are going to be terrible. He's going to enslave you. He's going to squander your resources. He's going to make things miserable. And they're like, great, give us a king. We want one. 
And so they go off to Gilgal and they anoint Saul as king. And it falls apart. There's only three chapters between what we had last week and between what we had this week. But in those three chapters, we hear this early part of Saul's reign. This time where, uh, in the eyes of Israel, he is doing exactly what they wanted. He is going out and he is whooping up at battle. He is knocking this group out and knocking that group out and they're fighting. And and he even looks pious because he's out offering sacrifices and doing these things that look right. But in that little three-chapter span, uh, twice Samuel has to come to Saul and go, why don't you trust God? In one instance, uh, Saul is out on the battlefield and he's, he's winning and they're having this good time. And, and, and the time comes where Samuel is supposed to be there and they're supposed to offer the sacrifice to Yahweh because, you know, Samuel is the priest. He's supposed to come and do this. And Saul kind of waits around and goes, well, Samuel's late. So I guess I'll offer the sacrifice. Give me, the, give me those animals. Let's slice them open. And, and he, he usurps that role. And Samuel goes, why? Why couldn't you trust? You couldn't trust that God was going to do what God said he would do. And you couldn't wait for me. God is going to reject you. And so he does what kings do. He goes on to the next battle and he goes out and he is fighting and he's waging war and he's whooping up on the Amalekites. He's, he's killing them all. He is uh, taking over some land and he is doing his king thing until the end where uh, it comes time to kill all their livestock. You don't leave anything left from the Amalekites. And he looks around and goes, well, this is just foolish, right? Why would we kill good sheep and cattle and oxen and birds and things like that. We could, we could stock up if we just kept all this stuff. Hey, king, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to kill all your people, and then I'm going to take all your stuff, okay? And Samuel comes, and, and the story talks about you can hear the sheep uh, buying in the background as he's talking to Saul and going, really, you couldn't do this one thing. You couldn't trust that God would provide for your needs for animals. You have to, to sit here and hoard for yourself. You're going to take these things and not trust Yahweh? Let me tell you, Saul, God is going to replace you. Now imagine being the person who tells the king, this brand new king, this mighty warrior who is handsome and strong, twice that Yahweh has rejected him and that he will no longer be king. That takes a little bit of guts to say, but he does it. He, he, he brings this word from God and says, your days are numbered. Now, when I hear that, I would expect that we would flip the page and the next thing that happened is we would have a new king, right? Saul reigns for 42 years. And in the midst of this, we have the David narrative where we have this, uh, this overlapping season where we're going to get to compare and contrast two, two would-be kings. Saul continues to reign. Samuel goes up to Bethlehem. He is a little scared and says, hey, how do I do this so that Saul doesn't kill me? Uh, and God says, well, go take a sacrifice and go offer it and, and bless Jesse's sons. And so he goes up to Bethlehem. He offers the sacrifices. He invites Jesse's sons to come. And they go one by one, by one down the line. At all these handsome, strapping young men who could lead them into battle. And then they get to little old David at the end. And it's like, surely, surely you can't mean this kid over here, right? He's kind of, kind of got a, a little kid's demeanor to him. He's, he's a shepherd, but he, he can't possibly compete with the likes of Saul to be our king. And we hear this part that Sarah brought out in the children's message that, that God doesn't see really what's on the outside. He sees what's on the inside. And so 
uh, Samuel anoints David and says, you're going to be king. If, if the prophet came and told me I was going to be king, I would like a date. Okay, this is going to happen on this season in the lunar calendar, right? But instead, he just anoints him, and we go on with life. And, and we see the rest of, uh, of, of 1 Samuel, this kind of interplay of Saul and David. Saul continues to reign. He, he doesn't have God's anointing, but he continues to go out and fight battles. He uh, has the major thing with the Philistines, where, of course, he's going to need somebody. So who comes and kills Goliath? David. He's going to start having nightmares, so he needs somebody to play him songs to help him sleep better. So who gets in his court and begins to play music? David. Whose daughter is, who is he going to marry his daughter off to? David. And we have this whole interplay. Who's his son going to be best friends with? David. For chapter after chapter, we see Saul and David. David, who seeks God's will at all these different moments in his kind of preparatory season. These moments where he could have uh, kind of claimed his anointing, right? He could have gone out and destroyed Saul. He has moments where he could have stabbed him in the back and, and claimed what we know is rightfully his. And instead, we have all these narratives that are going to be preached over the next weeks of, of, of how David's heart is different than Saul's. And we're going to see that David, much like Saul, is a mess uh, when it comes to his actions. You know, Saul actually does less bad stuff than David does. But his heart is so inclined to uh, to self-promotion and to, to himself, whereas David, for all of his disastrous mistakes, and let's not forgive David for, for much of what he has done, his heart is inclined to Yahweh. And, and when Yahweh's prophets speak to him, when Nathan comes and says, you're wrong, he doesn't try to deflect or dismiss or run away from it. He receives that and, and seeks to return to Yahweh. been trying to think about what this passage says to you and I. We're, we're not running for the monarchy of the church, are we? We're not in line for who's going to be the lead. But I think it speaks a great deal about what it means to be a people uh, who seek God, who, who trust in him fully, whose hearts are renovated, who have this interior condition where we, we seek God. We seek the best of God. We seek to be transformed by God, for God's grace to, to enter in and to sanctify us, to make us holy through and through, where then our behavior changes. For most of my life, I, I read the scripture as a, a model, a place where we're supposed to behave right. And it's been pretty late in life that I've realized that scripture over and over again says, you know, you're, you're just always going to behave wrong uh, if God isn't at the center of your life. If, if you're not being transformed, you're just going to make mistake after mistake after mistake. You're going to be selfish and you're going to be greedy. But if you trust in God, if you seek his grace, uh, you'll be transformed. And, and even if your outside isn't quite right yet, God knows your heart. We, we in our tradition like to talk about being made perfect in love, being sanctified, being uh, set free from the bondage of sin. You know, we recognize that that most of us aren't fully sanctified yet, and sin still reels its ugly, reveals its ugly head. But yet God knows our hearts. He knows your heart, and your heart, and your heart, and your heart. He knows. He knows at your core, have you let him in to do the work of transforming you, of, 
of a renovation of your heart where you receive the, the gifts of the Spirit and, and you bear fruit and, and things are good. Where even in the midst of hard, things are good. Even in the midst of knowing what is, is out there for you, things are good because you can trust in God. We are not called to be the monarch of the church. We're not called to the roles that David or Saul or any of them had. We're called to resilient discipleship. To, to allow God to shape us and form us. To, to work through the means of grace to transform us into his image more fully. To, to peel back the layers of sin that have uh, so marred his image in us. And to set us free to be a people who uh, reflect his goodness just as it's in our heart. in a book called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And one of the questions is, is for pastors, uh, would you be happy if your church had the same heart you have? That is the right look, Carrie. That is a, uh, that is a gut check uh, question right there. And I realize more and more how, how my life has to be wholly dependent on God's spirit to, to pour out God's grace and to transform me through the means of grace and through Christian community. And it's the same thing you need to, to trust God and to open yourselves up to him, to say, have at my heart. Shape me, mold me, for I know that absent this, I'm going to be a mess. Do people look around your life and say, oh, they've got it all together? Or do they say, look at what God has done through them. Look at what God is doing in them. Look at how goodness is coming forth. And you can ask your friends and family uh, to, to look at you and say, hey, what do, you, what do you see in me? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see that I reflect the Beatitudes? Do you see that the Spirit is transforming me to, to something that, that God would delight in? You can turn to Scripture and to prayer and to fasting. You can... Uh, come to the communion table and gather and worship and, and allow God's grace to continue to transform you. For we no longer are led out by a king. We're instead sent out by a spirit. We're sent out uh, to go and to be God's church. To be the spirit-filled uh, body of Christ in the world, full of people who are a mess, but who are seeking God's heart. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at how God can redeem messy people. And it starts with us looking and asking God to redeem our messiness. I think one of the great places to do that is at the table where God's grace meets us in this thin space between heaven and earth where we see the one who also became prophet, priest, and king, who gave himself up for us, who looked nothing like the king that Israel wanted, but who was God himself and was everything that Israel needed. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know the church universal has at so many times had people who look like they had it all together and who had moral failure after moral failure after moral failure. We have elevated people to places of leadership on the basis of charisma instead of character. We have... Uh, brushed vice under the rug and not demanded virtue. 
And yet we know that you know our hearts. And you modeled what you desired for, for your kingdom, which is a, a, a transformed life oriented entirely towards you. Lord, would you meet us at this table? Would you pour your grace out in lavish ways that uh, any vestiges of sin reigning in our hearts might be removed and that you might fill us with your presence and that we might be transformed, that we might go forth even in the midst of a messy world bearing witness to your goodness and to your love. You're the same God whose anointing was on Samuel, was on David, was on the prophets, was on the apostles. And you offer us that same gift of anointing too. Would your spirit pour out in mighty and powerful ways. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who was prophet, priest, and king, and by the power of your Holy Spirit who fills us and transforms us. Amen. Amen.